This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and today we wanted to try something a little bit different. We're going to do a quarterly recap, similar to investor letters that are so common in traditional financial markets, where investors write a letter to their shareholders telling them what's been going on in the market, how they're positioned. We thought it would be fun to try to cover the most interesting topics across Web3 that happened this past quarter by gathering questions from our listeners. Today, I'm joined by Matt Russell of Colossus to kick it off. Yeah, Eric, happy to pitch in and ask some questions. Thanks to the community for submitting everything. It was awesome to see the group of people that have been following us since the beginning and the growing listener base and to see everybody involved. It's just awesome to see all of our different communities at Colossus grow. I think we can kick things off at a very, very broad level. The first quarter was active regardless of what market you were in. It was, I think, classified by a lot of volatility. But if you just went to bed on December 31st and then woke up at the end of March, you would be looking at Bitcoin down just under 2%, 1.7%, Ethereum down about 10%. And then just for some context, the S&P was down about 5% and the NASDAQ was down about 9%. So just at a very broad level, what are your takeaways when hearing those numbers in reference to everything that was going on in the quarter and the performance? Looking back on the quarter, it's hard not to think about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That was really the biggest event. But if you just rewind coming into January... I think the way we're positioned from a macro standpoint is the Fed was beginning to get a bit more hawkish, which means that they were clearly looking at inflation numbers higher than expected. They had pivoted from the word transitory. This is now something that's much more real and present danger. When I think back to January, I remember Goldman started to get a lot more concerned about what the year looked like. And then February was when Russia invaded Ukraine. And then I think that that moment was one of these things that when happens in markets, all bets are off. So predicting macro or trying to position is always notoriously difficult, but an exogenous shock like that really rebases people of what's going on. And it was really interesting. I know we'll get into it, that crypto as an asset class and how it performed in light of it. But looking back on it, in some ways, if you said a world war was going to break out and people were going to legitimately talk about the threat of nuclear attacks... I would have had double-digit losses and a flight to quality and treasuries rallying and the Fed stepping in. I don't think I would have said Fed's raising and the stock market is holding in as well as it has. When you look at in all of that context, Bitcoin being down just 2%, so outperforming a lot of the traditional asset class benchmarks that we use, you could say, on the other hand, gold was up 8%. So if you want to just use the Bitcoin gold flight to quality, maybe there was a little bit of underperformance there. but 
Was there anything proven out in terms of a narrative or staying power in terms of Bitcoin and that outperformance on a relative basis in the midst of all this volatility? Was there anything to take away there? I think I'm always learning from Bitcoin. Feels to me like the market has a Rorschach test with it, where, for example, as soon as the sanctions hit Russia, there was one side saying Russian oligarchs and the Russian government is now going to use Bitcoin and crypto's currency as a way to avoid sanctions. On the other side of the, the Rorschach test, people said uh, Russian citizens and Ukrainian citizens who are struggling to get their money out of these two countries that are deeply in war with each other now have an option to become self-sovereign and protect their own assets to either flee their countries or get to safety or have a different form of financial certainty that we probably take for granted in the United States. And so I think that it just feels like we're always learning. I think Lloyd Blankfein kind of had a really great tweet in the middle of it. This should be Bitcoin's time to shine. Inflation's up. The market's not doing well. Commodities are rising. There's threat of world war. Isn't this when you want these hard assets, these store of values? In my opinion, my just simple look of it is just that we're not there yet in Bitcoin's evolution of an asset class. I think, and I feel strongly we're getting there, but Bitcoin is growing up as an asset class and it's just being used in different ways. And so what you can see specifically with Bitcoin is it does have institutional adoption. It is used by institutional investors from hedge funds to sovereign wealth to pensions. And it's liquid. It's very liquid at size, which is showing how mature it's becoming. But it also means that when stuff goes bad, the liquid, sizable stuff is the first thing that people move. Where it performed well enough, it was an easy thing to be like, I want to take risk off. And so I think one of the narratives that people have been looking for is this correlation versus decorrelation with uh, traditional assets like stocks. And so I think what we saw is a heightened correlation that equities are up, Bitcoin is up, and vice versa. And ideally, if you're really bullish on Bitcoin as a store of value, that you'd hope it acted in a different way, that it wasn't behaving. And I think what we saw is it's definitely a risk asset to people. It's a liquid, globally traded asset, which I don't think is the worst thing. To me, it is a sign of adoption that, of course, it's going to be highly correlated at first because the people using it in their portfolios are still not fully committed to it. It doesn't have the same track record as gold to say that when a war breaks out and there's real blood in the streets, the whole Rothschild thing of you want to own gold in one point and one point only. I've never owned gold in my life, but I own Bitcoin. But that the gold argument was in a portfolio that's truly the end of the world, own gold, because this is the thing that you can convert in that one moment to then take risk on. You hold it, bad thing happens, go buy risk assets. And Bitcoin just isn't there yet. I think the growing up phrasing is a good one to use. And I just think there's a scenario where Bitcoin was down 50% and it was a real test and it didn't perform in any which way. And it was complete risk off. So even the fact that it held in or was relatively stable on a relative basis is fairly interesting. What do you make of the outperformance of Bitcoin relative to ETH? Is that a pair trade that you watch closely? Is there anything to take away from ETH being down significantly more than Bitcoin over the quarter? Yeah, definitely something I watch pretty closely. ETH had previously outperformed Bitcoin wildly in 21. And so I think coming into 22, there was a belief of, are people underweight Bitcoin relative to Ethereum? Ethereum had NFT summer. They had all of these applications launching. It just felt like all the action and all the users were spiking on Ethereum. It's kind of funny. 
you'll appreciate this from stocks. And I'm sure this is one of the things we'll talk about is like Q1 kind of had a bad comp, but any equity analyst would say it was a really high number you're comping them against. But I do think that in general, Bitcoin adoption remains in a growing trajectory with institutional funds. And so as crypto gets adopted broadly, the first thing any institution or typically any retail client is going to buy is Bitcoin. That is their first level of exposure. And so it's a good sign when Bitcoin is doing well. Like to me, I'm not a maxi on anything. I don't like that as a strategy. I don't think that's a healthy way to view the world in general. But I think that people thought that maybe Ethereum had run too hot, Bitcoin looked attractive, and that in general, you just continue to have this like institutional wave, which is a slow step function as big firms come in. They allocate a little bit of money, then they get comfortable, they allocate more and more institutions get comfortable. So you kind of have this slow march, in my opinion, of how Bitcoin is becoming that growing up cycle. Like I would say they're past the toddler, they're kind of in the adolescent phase, maybe I'd call Bitcoin a teenager. And Ethereum is the younger brother that's all excited to do all these new exciting things and not learn from the big brother. And so Ethereum gets a lot of attention when things happen, like NFTs or DeFi, and you get these huge spikes in adoption. And then it seems like it's very cyclical. It doesn't continue to get ridiculous numbers. I would say it was really strong performance of Bitcoin relative to Ethereum. But I think a lot of it has to do with giving back maybe the gains Ethereum made last summer and into the fall. And if we ever run into tough comps, we just start using those two-year stacks. And I like that we're going with the adolescent stage and not using the easy baseball analogy of what inning we're in. So this is going down a good path thus far. Beyond Bitcoin and Ethereum, are there other benchmark assets that you look at in crypto land in order to think about the environment or anything else that you track fairly closely to monitor the general performance of the asset class? Yeah, I definitely try to look at other L1s like Solana, AVAX, Luna. That's kind of like a trade that has its own name, like Saluna AVAX, whatever they call it. Those are interesting. Near is a new protocol that's got a lot of attention. So trying to see the things that people are really interested in following. And then I think you can also follow the L2s, which are level twos on Ethereum and how they're performing. Then you get into DeFi and Metaverse, where I probably follow Metaverse the least, even though I'm really follow, because I think you can follow the NFTs and get a better sense than Metaverse. Although a big thing in the first quarter was the launch of ApeCoin, which I think surprised everyone because it was the first real successful token launch of that type of scale and size from an NFT project. But yeah, definitely looking at how other large blockchains are performing on a relative basis. And you definitely see there is a narrative that if Bitcoin starts to perform, it means cryptocurrency adoption. As cryptocurrency gets adopted, people are probably going to use it for more things, which is Ethereum. As Ethereum gets used more and gas goes up, people go, is there an alternative? And they kind of like move out. This is like this rotation that you can kind of see in the narrative of like, well, if Ethereum is doing so well, some of that is going to go to other chains like Solana or potentially the L2s. And then you're like, oh, what are people doing on those things? They're doing DeFi or they're doing NFTs. I want to make specific bets. And then like anything, the market gets ahead of itself and starts saying these things are worth a lot of money. And then they get too hot. They come down in this kind of volatility drawdown and everyone goes back to the beginning and says, okay, I want Bitcoin or I want to be all the way in stable coins. So I think it's important. Dan Matashevsky, who is a friend of mine, calls it the hot ball of money. And really from trying to talk to other traders, actually a lot of Twitter, Discord, and Telegram, you're just trying to figure out like, where are we? And if it's gotten too far in a relative basis, you can see how people are going to position against it. Really interesting to 
see the connective tissue between all the different layers, literally. I'm curious, in terms of the NFT market, it's something that you have quite a background in. How do you go about evaluating performance there? And I'll make it a two-part question because I'm always very interested to understand the impact that the Ethereum price has on the NFT market and whether you know Ethereum's rise or Ethereum's fall drives any difference in the pricing of NFTs. So we'd be curious to get your thoughts there. There's a lot of ways to look at performance. I'd say the two that I like the most are general NFT adoption or NFT performance in general. How many wallets are on chain? How many transactions? A lot of OpenSea statistics are helpful, like what's the volume? And you can kind of see how many people are coming to the space and experimenting. I always used to look at CryptoPunk's floor price. And then that switched recently to Bored Apes because it's the most expensive, widely traded asset. So that's just a helpful thing to kind of benchmark off of. How many Bored Apes will trade per day? What is that in volume? What is that in relative value in both dollars and Ethereum? Which gets to your second point. There's definitely a observable pattern that you can see in the data that when Ethereum runs, it ran from $3,000 to like probably 3500 What that means is people start pricing their NFTs lower. And you can see in the Board of Yacht Club that that's just one example. They're still thinking in US dollars. There's this back and forth in your mind plays. Like I joke with people when they sell stuff, they tell you how much US dollars they made. When they buy something, they tell you how much ETH which definitely has two effects. One, it has this casino effect that people are playing with poker chips. It is a lot easier, no matter what anyone tells you. I can speak from my own experience. Spending $30,000 on a picture, it's hard to say out loud across the microphone. Saying I spent 10 ETH sounds totally different. And there's just something about that mental block. When you then go sell it and you're back into your hard currency, if you sell something for 110 ETH, you're like, someone paid me $330,000. So when ETH runs, people are more than willing to decrease their ETH price and they still think in those US dollar terms. Likewise, it doesn't happen as much when ETH falls, people will raise, but sometimes they don't. So I do think that the best time for NFTs to perform is when ETH is sideways. It's hard for people. Sometimes I think about this, that it's so cool how crypto got people into finance. I've always wanted to see financial literacy increased. And I think crypto is such an underappreciated thing of how people are talking about bid-ask spreads, volatility, momentum. But like you're essentially running a multinational company with cross-country collateral and currencies. You're a mini Budweiser, for God's sakes. You've got currency here, here. I've got exposure there. None of it's hedged. Some of it's hedged. It's really confusing for the average person who's like, I got into this for fun. And the financial implications to me are massive and they're special and they're unique. And that's why I get so fired up about it. Because I'm like, imagine what's going to happen when all the other people start to figure out what you could possibly do with this. But for the average person just trying to handle significant portfolio value and manage it, the currency implications on the price are definitely interesting to watch. If ETH's up 12% and your NFT is flat, I think people quickly whether they appreciate it or not, realize how illiquid NFTs are. So they might not want to admit it in their head. They're like, oh, my portfolio is worth X dollars. I'm like, okay, when anyone tells you that, if you sold all of it today, what would it be worth? And could you do that? And when the liquid ETH, which you can transact in seconds, is moving, like, I really should have had a portfolio of ETH. So like, the best timing is ETH is running and they're willing to get out of their NFTs, buy their NFTs, and likewise, ETH hits a stable plateau, get out and you probably can find a dollar gain there. It's an interesting parallel. I think even with the stock market, you have 
these founders who still own massive percentages of their businesses and they have these net worth numbers here. But if they were to try to liquidate even a large portion of that, that number would be just a fraction of what it represents in the market today. But really, really interesting. I like the discussion about all the opportunities that exist. And just coming from a finance background, it was one of the things that shocked me the most was how many seemingly obvious ARB opportunities there were. And then I would do a little bit more work and realize these aren't ARB opportunities because there's all these other dynamics that go into it in terms of gas fees and liquidity and all these other things. But for anyone getting involved, whether it's at the ground level with no financial background or with a financial background, it's an incredibly fast learning process and the curve is insanely steep. And it's much more, I would say, approachable only in the sense that it feels a little bit more welcoming to a consumer than some of these old financial institutions, which could be much less welcoming. How do you think the adoption from an individual, non-institutional level versus the institutions over the course of the first quarter, considering we had 2021, which was insane adoption, where do you think that's trended through the start of this year? Is that waning to a large extent? Do you feel like it's still really there? It's just slowed down off very tough comps, as you mentioned before. How does it feel in terms of where the money is coming from these days? Yeah, I think January surprised everyone to the upside that there was a lot of increased demand and it came in two parts. One was people had tax loss harvested going into December and everyone was doing the same trade at the same time. And so it actually happened. I felt like it kind of rebounded publicly. I think I have it in my notes. Three or four days before the end of the year, everyone starts to front run a little bit where it's like, okay, everyone's selling, everyone's selling, everyone wants to realize losses. At some point, you should just pick the stuff up because people are going to want it back. But the selling pressure just seemed constant. And then it did feel like the turn of the year, some switch went off and people either thought you had to wait and you couldn't just buy it back, which isn't true, or they just wanted to wait over the year. But the minute we turned into January, I think you had a lot of tax loss buying back. So a lot of people who were in ETH went back to NFTs. And you did see just headlines. It was always... There's so many parallels to TradeFi. For whatever reason, we always look at year-end performance, January 1st to December 31st, and someone shows you that NFTs did some wild number and it gets a bunch of new entrants. So January definitely caused what felt like a huge spike in demand. And then into February, I think it started to wane a little bit. And then the war really rattled everything of like, oh my God, there's much more serious things to worry about than pictures of animals and cryptocurrency. And so now I think we're in a bit of a stasis. On the crypto side, you're still seeing Bitcoin strength as people are kind of shake out now as the Fed pivots to a tightening cycle and a more aggressive tightening cycle. And we might be tipping off into recession. People are reevaluating their portfolios. And this is another thing. In up markets, people look for the sexiest assets of like how to get that alpha. When your portfolio starts getting like tanked, people are not asking about the new asset classes anymore. They're like, what happened? And how do I get out of what just happened? They're not as exploratory as, oh, maybe we should try this or try that strategy. Well, you know, versus W don't. Yep. And I think in NFTs, the big news was Yuga Labs acquiring, which is the founders behind Vortic Yacht Club, acquired Larva Labs, who created Autoglyphs, CryptoPunks, and Mebits. That was huge news in the NFT space. And I thought we saw just in general with that is a realization, and you see this in cryptocurrencies too, of what people will call the blue chips or the top market cap coins versus the altcoins. I don't know if I can say this on our own podcast, but the shit coins, like how aggressive the risk spectrum you want to go. Free game. Yeah. I think you saw that in NFTs. There was this project called Pixelmon 
that it just makes me smile because I'll just always remember it. And they launched these NFTs. I think they were like three ETH each. They raised like $70 million. And then they showed one of these characters who is, I don't know if he was named Kevin or if like we all named him Kevin on the internet. Like how I just love these emergent behaviors, but it's like the worst art ever. I'm not trying to shit on the artist. It wasn't good, especially for three ETH, but it was almost so bad it was good. It created its own whole separate hype cycle. But I think it made people take a step back and like, good God, like what are we financing? And so again, markets do this all the time. I'm not judgmental about it because I think it's great. There's a new financing mechanism that three or four people can come together. They can have a good idea. They can copy and paste a solidity contract. They can build a discord, get a hype cycle going, raise money, and then hopefully do something with it that the people that paid are happy for. Any new market, any hot market does attribute bad actors. I think that's something most people in finance have come to accept, but it can still be surprising when it happens to them at any point in time. You mentioned the geopolitical dynamics really starting to put people in a position where they're stepping back, reassessing their portfolio. I think there is an interesting dynamic here where you had Russia seeing their foreign currency reserves frozen. And I think it put that fiat currency question mark that Bitcoin maxis often hammer the point home in question. And where do you think we stand today just in terms of the geopolitical narrative? There's been so much buildup to this idea that something like this, an event like this could take place. You mentioned two very different ways of looking at it, but what have been some of the developments that we've seen over the course of the quarter and maybe even going further back into last year in terms of how countries are dealing with this and whether there's actual proof of these things playing out in real time? I have a friend in Ukraine that had done some work for me and I was talking to him and you know, he's asking about the United States and our involvement, what we can and can't do. And I can't speak for our country. I was just trying to tell him the type of stuff I'm reading in our news. But one thing I was trying to explain is how freezing another nation's reserves, in my opinion, is a huge deal financially. It's not that what's happening isn't an atrocity and could be stopped, but there's levels like anything of how we want to escalate on a geopolitical level to interact without necessarily causing World War III. The freezing of the assets surprised me. Anyone who wants to speculate on it quickly moves to how can a sovereign nation's assets be frozen by another nation, if not for the interconnected banking system, which comes to show the immense power of the United States, specifically the US dollar, and our ability to freeze reserves. There was this thought of like, well, does that mean that foreign nations will look to adopt something? I think the first thing they're going to look to adopt, and you're already seeing this, is no leader doesn't want to control their own currency. It's the way they can inflate their way out of problems. It's an extremely powerful tool. No one's going to give up easily. Right. Yeah. I mean, the perfect example is Russia only accepting rubles. Exactly. For the commodities. Yep. So I think what you're going to see is imagine you're playing Monopoly with your friends and you're like, okay, I'm only going to trade with you and you can use my money and I'll trade with you. So like bilateral agreements that will lock in some sort of peg between our currencies and just create a closed loop system which is the opposite of globalization and a free economy. It's okay, China and Russia and Saudi Arabia will do deals on economic agreements where they're like, our currencies are kind of locked. Now, this is a hard thing to do because our currencies do float freely in other markets. And so if you're on the wrong side of that and the ruble becomes worth less and less, how long does Saudi Arabia want to say, I'll give you oil for this price, I promise. It's incumbent upon the ruble rebounding. So I think you're going to see that first. But 
what's sort of obviously interesting thought experiment to think about is if you all agreed to use Bitcoin and had converted some level of your reserves to Bitcoin, you would have a asset that you could trade as a unit of exchange that you wouldn't have to worry about the other person's currencies. Like if you have enough Bitcoin, you can purchase oil. If you have enough Bitcoin, you can purchase potash from Russia and then go back and forth. I'm curious with what was put in place to restrict Russia. Do you think that's any more likely that something like that is adopted where Bitcoin essentially becomes the reserve currency in that case? People much smarter than me have talked about this of like, how and could a country do this? I think the thing about Bitcoin, which is what to me makes it so special, is it's hard to hide that. If Russia started to accumulate billions of dollars of Bitcoin, lots of people would know there's a buyer and where's it going? What's it being used for? It's not this easy thing that people think about to obfuscate money. And I think that's just like one of the misperceptions I see a lot about. If you're a bad guy, I forget what it was. Maybe it was like the Iran deal. When we want to make things happen, anyone in the world wants to make things happen, it involves pallets of $100 crisp US dollar bills because it's too expensive to fly gold bars. And we can put an Air Force plane to liquefy a reserve currency because the US dollar is, and I believe will remain, the most powerful currency in the world. That doesn't mean that Bitcoin doesn't have a place. But if they were going to do that, they would have had to probably have adopted it in non-war times, started to accumulate it, add it to their central bank reserve policy, get it into their banking system. I'll tell you something that I was surprised by. When China banned it, and I know people are moving to this idea of a central bank coin, these CBDCs, I thought if I was Russia or China and I wanted to attack the United States, I would have moved to Bitcoin a long time ago. I would have been like, we're going to Bitcoin and make the US attack it, make the technology flee. That's what I thought they were going to do. When China banned Bitcoin mining and moved this policy, I was like, oh my God, America has a chance. We can make this technology the most amazing thing and actually have it be an export, a further export of US dollars, which is back to kind of the starting point where the global power position comes from. Yeah. I mean, pallets, cheaper to move dollars and gold, but supply chain issues, you know, just send it to Bitcoin. It's a lot easier. Yeah. Don't have to worry about all that other stuff. You can't print it. It's a problem. Fair. Very fair. Beyond the wartime issues, I think 2021, there was a lot of development with emerging economies, emerging countries, trying to find different ways to adopt crypto within the nation from whether it's a tax perspective and tax havens. Has that continued on into this year? Have we seen anything proven out? whether that's on a country level or even at a city level. I think what we've seen in Miami, to a lesser extent, New York, major pushes where the politics around crypto are driving some decisions and driving an idea that there could be a push to support the local economies. Where do we stand on some of those strategies? Two parts. The first is countries like El Salvador adopting Bitcoin as legal tender, which is a huge experiment to say, we're actually going to use this and let citizens and recognize it as a country. And to me, if I was running an emerging country or developing nation, I'm not sure why you wouldn't try to do it because you're under the thumb of other currencies anyways. And your currency always has the risk of hyperinflation and the citizens are used to that. So it's hard. Again, the point earlier of if you run a country, the reason why you want to own your currency is so you do have the option to hyperinflate it. Now, nobody will ever say that, but no one would believe in your currency. But that's how people traditionally get out of problems when their economy tips over. By moving to Bitcoin, you're forced into like a much more honest form of bookkeeping. 
And it's something I remember in college, someone told me that like one of the biggest mistakes you'll make is applying microeconomics to macroeconomics because macroeconomics don't have to follow the same rules. For a country to make this decision, although I admire it, I think it's the countries that have so much like your back's against the corner. Why not try it? Come in, say you're going to do this, but you can't deficit finance your way out of things. You can't play the same tricks that governments play by borrowing from the future to pay for today. It's not a political statement. It's just what everyone does. And they're allowed to because, or at least this is a theory, and this is from my muni background, when governments would do this, whether it was the town of New York City or Detroit or Puerto Rico or LA, is that they're perpetuities. It's not a corporation. It literally will be here for eternity. So it can borrow and get itself into these financial positions. Moving to Bitcoin is a big decision. Going to your other question about Miami, New York, Austin, Switzerland, I think that there's two things at play. There's the country regulatory environments, which is definitely going to attract talent and entrepreneurship, which is huge. And I just so badly don't want to lose that to other countries. I do not want to see FTX in the Bahamas. I don't want to see brilliant people having offshore entities because they don't understand where the SEC is going to come out. Like It is such a mistake not to give them an opportunity to build. I know there are things that are going on that are bad and, and, and concerning, but I feel it's the same way people thought about the internet originally. That, oh, there's all these bad actors and bad things are going to happen and what to do. But there's just so many great, brilliant people that I want to see in the United States. So there's the country fight and then there's the inter-US battle for which city is the best place. My gut right now is I think Miami is doing a great job. I think the mayor is attracting a lot of attention. Bitcoin Miami this week is happening. I think Miami and Brooklyn are two of the hotbeds. It's funny because New York has this horrible regulation that prevents a lot of people from doing stuff, but it's got a lot of talent and there's a lot of people that want it. And I just think someone else said it, not me, but in a democracy, when a lot of people want something, eventually they'll get it. It just takes time. So I think Austin's also making a good run for it. They've been trying to be a bastion of entrepreneurship anyways, but it seems to me like those three are kind of the biggest hubs right now. And on a federal level, we got the executive order in the beginning of March, long awaited. What were your takeaways? Gensler at the SEC has been adamantly concerned that his level of comfort is not being met to approve more financial products for whether that's a spot ETF or how he wants to regulate exchanges. Yellen has had a lot of comments. And in general, it's like, we need a lot more work here. So I think between those two, but specifically Gensler, I think the crypto market was set up for like, oh God, an executive order is coming out and Biden is going to go really extreme on it, ban crypto, ban mining, do something that would be maybe not catastrophic to the industry, but severely limiting. And when it came out, it was a dream for people that read policy. Primary document was, we're going to start a bunch of committees and study stuff. This could not have been more bullish. They could have just said Bitcoin's amazing because what that means is they're kicking the can down the line. They want to get smart. That's great. But they're not doing anything without knowledge, which is honestly what you want to hear from your government is we're going to take our time, figure this out, and we're not going to make some unilateral decision. It surprised everyone to the upside. And I think people were so surprised they were like, had to go read it again because other people's comments were like, I've been entitled to be more of a czar on this. It's like, no, you didn't. What you were entitled to do is report back to the United States Congress on what we should do and why I'm hopeful. And we're seeing it change. It really does feel like the infrastructure bill was a pivot that we're now seeing Congress leaders in the Senate and the House start to realize this is actually a voting issue for people, that they can get people really excited about bringing into their state, bringing jobs, bringing investment. It's not all money laundering and bad activities. 
in terms of the talent drain that you were referencing before, what do you think would be the catalyst to drive that? Is it more of a demand pull from countries like El Salvador or the Bahamas just making certain policy actions that will attract the talent? Or is it things that might happen within the US that would push people away? And what are you watching for that would really be a driver of that talent drain? I think some people think it's taxes. Lisbon in Portugal, I think, has a program where you can move there. And if you become a citizen of Portugal for X amount of years, you don't pay taxes. That to me is a short-term game. There's definitely people that will move their life and family. But for the people that are creators, I think it's all about regulation and risk. And what am I exposing myself and my employees to if I conduct this mode of business where entrepreneurs are trying to solve customers' problems and customers want something and they want to deliver something. So if you're FTX, for example, it's a great business. They, I'm sure they would love to be in the United States, but they need to find a regulatory environment where they can continue to serve their customer base and solve their problems. And it's just not something I like to see when you log onto a website. And it's like, I've never experienced this before. And maybe it's being a snobby American. You cannot enter the site if you're an American, North Korean, Iranian. I'm like, what? Like, how did we end up on this list? And it's because of fear of regulation. So I think that regulatory clarity is the most important thing for the industry. And the United States capital market system is the system that everyone wants to be a part of. That to me is where the rubber hits the road and the most important thing. So a country can offer you tax loopholes. It can offer you regulatory safe haven. It can do all of that. And I just don't want to see a two-party market where like the United States is traditional, is TradeFi. And I'm just making it up, like Switzerland becomes the crypto capital of the world. Like I just, I want that all to be in America. Not that it's on a global asset class and other countries won't do really well, but we have the most developed financial markets in the world. Why wouldn't we want this asset class in this market? Completely fair point and understandable risk. I think from an institutional side of things, it's interesting when you talk about trade five and where we're seeing a lot of capital come into the market and we can debate the VCs that are coming into the market, do they represent traditional finance or are they somewhere on the fence in between the two? But you've seen huge capital raises in terms of crypto dedicated capital, A16Z, close to 5 billion, FTX, close to 2 billion, Pantera. And there's a long list. So all of that capital coming into the market, I think there's this big question. We received a lot of this in the inbox. Where do you think the majority of this capital ends up going in terms of allocations, whether it's new technologies built in terms of layering new coins or actually applications that are built with blockchain technology behind it? Where do you see most of that capital coming into the market? There's a skeptical way to answer this and an optimistic way. Which one do you want to start with first? Let's start with the good news and then we'll flow into the cynical stuff. So the good news is that when there's an abundance of capital, great ideas that probably wouldn't see the light of day get a chance because a lot of that capital is looking for where can we get deployed. And it makes sense, to be honest. If you look at the crypto returns, if you look at multi-coin, I think that was passed around TradeFi, their numbers are so high on returns to investors that it makes people think that that cannot be real and that didn't happen just because of how high they are relative to anything we've ever seen. And this is comparing... Buffett and Renaissance numbers to be like, how did they do this? And the reason is that 
there wasn't as much capital fighting for ideas and these ideas were massive. And so I think what you've seen is venture capital funds that were even trying to do this are now spinning out. Like we really need dedicated subject matter expertise. I think on the venture capital side, you're seeing a bit of a catch up that Bain Capital just spun out a $500 million venture fund. You named a bunch of other ones that are saying some of them have been in the game for a long time, but major firms are saying this is not even meant to be in the same fund. They're dealing with tokens. They're dealing with anonymous founders. They're dealing with all protocol risk. It's a whole new asset class to invest in, which I think is really exciting. So I think on the optimistic side, it makes sense to me that you see all this money. I think some of this is a bit of repurposing of funds of saying like, how much do I want into my... I'll just use Bain as an example. How much do I want in Bain Ventures? How much do I want in Bain Crypto? And people kind of being able to make their allocation bets. But I think the most optimistic thing that you can say is there's a lot of crazy shoot the moon ideas that are going to get a chance to get funded that might not in a more of like a venture capital winter. The skeptical side that people are going to say in point two is that that's a lot of money chasing ideas. And so a lot of ideas that maybe shouldn't have got funded might, just a lot of capital. But we've seen this for a while now with interest rates formerly at zero, no, no, no more, not for great reasons, but where interest rates are low and long-term expected returns are low, people were pushing out the risk curve and there was capital trying to find a home. So there was an abundance of capital trying to find great allocators, great allocators trying to find great investors, great investors trying to find great entrepreneurs. I think there's just been a lack across that pipeline of where that money has a home to go. And now crypto, this unbelievable outperforming asset, really didn't have enough capital, which is how those returns happen, right? The fact that a small group of people were able to bet in a contrarian way, that's how you get massive upside. So will the returns be multi-coin level again? Probably not. I don't know if we'll ever see those again. And they deserve a tremendous amount of credit, but there is a lot of opportunity. And I think that what we'll see from this class is, yes, like any venture, there'll be some burnouts and spectacular failures, which happen because people try bold things that I'm excited about. But I think you're also going to see huge, massive winners because the space is still evolving so quickly. It's a big gap between my hurdle rate and Litecoin's returns that if they don't hit those marks ever again, I think we'd be just okay. It's fine. You're going to be fine. Awesome. Just going through the list of some of the other incoming questions we got. It felt like 2021 was a huge play to earn storyline with a lot of different games launching and hitting outrageous highs, but it feels like things have calmed down quite a bit. And you could argue potentially gotten a little cold. How would you describe the environment for play to earn, which I think was so attractive and so interesting and intriguing from an economic perspective and some of the things that were happening around the world. But at the same time, they are economies in and of themselves and they run into issues. So maybe broad strokes and any interesting anecdotes that you might have on play to earn and how that segment of the market feels now. I'm still very excited about play to earn or play and earn, whatever you want to call it. I think if you zoom out a level, I would just call it the financialization of everything, which some people have like, they don't like that. Again, it's not if I like it or I don't like it. There's technology that lets you do that. And that introduces really unique incentives of how to motivate people. So to play a game and that game results in the potential of currency, which could eventually be converted to US dollars, is a really interesting idea. I think the challenges are that you need to create a game that's so fun, people want to play it independent of the money. And then you also have the secondary challenge of balancing supply and demand balances of like running a central bank. So when we interviewed Geo from Axie, it was by far the thing that was the category creator in this space of them really introducing it. 
I was just stunned by how hard that job was, that creating an interesting game is hard, having the developers, the engineers. Now you also have to have central bank theory of your in-game economy. And when it's in-game points and tokens, that's hard. That's a hard thing to do. But now once you can get to this cross-currency operations where you can trade this and stake it and earn yield on it, loan against it, affect a country like the Philippines GDP by how many people you employed to play the game. Again, it exposed how massive the potential is, but there's a lot of learning. That's why I tell people we're still in that learning experimentation phase of we're going to try new things. So I think that, yeah, maybe it cooled off on the headline numbers that you can't just jump into any play to earn game and it's going to work. But I think that we released a mechanism that really smart game designers are extremely excited to play with. And we'll just see more and more innovation in that space. I don't see any slowdown from my friends that are in the VC side that are just as excited about that space and trying to find someone who figures out what the recipe is to how to manage both the game and the economy. It's a decent segue into the metaverse concept, which I'm very curious to see in this upcoming earnings season. If we do the keyword search and how often metaverse gets mentioned versus the last couple of quarters, but it was a phenomenon. I think it continues to be. And where it's going Nobody's exactly sure how it shakes out, but there's a lot of developments going on. A lot of people that we've spoke to on this podcast that have discussed it. Where do you think we are in terms of the hype that's built around it, the reality of it, where some of the capital is going and being deployed, and the likelihood that you have some, whether we call it winner take all or some individual metaverse that really controls the market versus much smaller separate metaverses that might interact with one another. It always depends on the definition of metaverse. So that's part of it. You had obviously Facebook changing their name to Meta, which is a big deal. Although I just heard they're going to charge 47.5% on transactions. <laughs> so like that would be a misstep if that's true and not an internet meme. I thought it was a joke this morning, but I don't actually think it's a joke. So I think the metaverse to me has really been like what we're doing right now. You and I are on Zoom, we talk on text. There's Telegram, Discord, Twitter. We're just online more and more every day. So our hours online is not going to slow down. That is only going to increase. I think this is the skeuomorphic thing Chris Dixon talks about. And I thought Patrick did a good job with the Second Life founder and Bill Gurley talking about that game that we once played of like how hard it is. I think when we think of Metaverse, we all think of Second Life, or at least the people who have played Second Life think of it. It was an online game that you could log in and you had an avatar and you'd walk around and talk. And the problem for me is the asynchrony part that right now there's a Telegram chat I'm on that's amazing. And there'll probably be 500 comments by the end of the day. I wasn't there for that, but I didn't miss any of the flow. I can just jump back in, reply, have a thread. Same thing with Discord. To an extent, Twitter. Twitter just kind of controls what you see. And so like, there's an algorithmic nature of it, but it's still it's asynchronous. You can come and go as you please. I'm not that excited about logging on and going to hang out with you at a bar in the metaverse yet. Maybe I will be in the future and that will become a thing. I don't think that's what it is. And so I think we're still feeling our way through it. I'm not like a board ape maxi. Like I said, I wasn't a maxi, but I love the board ape yacht club. And they've got this thing called the other side. And the videos look really cool of what it possibly could be. But again, I think it has a lot of the same challenges. The idea is that you're selling land in the metaverse to finance the development of something that people are going to want to play for the long term. So it still feels, I hate saying super early, but specifically super early there, because I think we're still searching for the definition of what does it successfully look like? And it's 
like a lot of these things, whether it's crypto or NFTs, they're emergent. So something's going to happen. We're going to start using it. And the next thing you're going to know, our quarterly wrap up is going to be in the metaverse and we're going to be little emojis or something. Your point on the real-time interaction versus the on-demand exposure. I even think about this with podcasts relative to radio. The great thing about podcasts is I could listen to whoever, whenever I wanted, just download. But now you see more podcasts going to live shows that you can then download after the fact. And how that gets figured out from a metaverse perspective will be really interesting and potentially combining the two things, but also being able to experience something at different times from someone else. To that point, we go to a concert. There's an event. There's a time. If I'm going to go see Snoop live at the Garden, that's an exciting thing. So I have to not asynchronously go, I can listen to the music whenever I want, or I could go to the show and listen to it live. Why am I doing that? Because the experience is so great that it's worth it. That's like a thing you can go to and you can come back and you can say, okay, I experienced that. So the question to me is like, what is the metaverse or a live event so exciting that you're willing to move your schedule around? The only thing that everyone's short on is time. And so everyone's trying to optimize for time, or at least they should be. The asynchrony of information is just a really good way to expand your information consumption, what you're doing. But a concert's not. And that's really special because you're there with other people. You're experiencing it live at that moment. And so the question that I have is like, when does a metaverse event become so exciting? They're like, I'm looking forward to that. Friday night, I will see you here. Like going to a bar with you in person and having a beer is a fun experience. I love Justin Waldron's examples of like getting a slice of pizza or a coffee. It's like an excuse for us to hang out. You can't go to the bar and then you come two hours later and it'd be a fun experience. What or how can the metaverse solve that for human connection? Yeah, make something appointment viewing. It's very interesting just in general with entertainment moving away from that, but also the metaverse kind of needing something like that to really draw people in. Well, Eric, I had a ton of fun running through these questions with you. Again, thank you to everyone who submitted questions. For any new listeners, make sure to subscribe to Web3 Breakdowns on your preferred podcast feed. You can also visit joincolossus.com to search our database of content. We have transcripts. We have episode research. We have our favorite third-party content. There's a wealth of knowledge at your fingertips across our shows and best like the best. Founders Field Guide, Business Breakdowns, Web3 Breakdowns. There's constantly things coming out, and it's all up there on the website with that supporting content. Lastly, we'd appreciate any feedback you have on the format of this episode, so feel free to drop us a note at feedback at joincolossus.com. Again, that's feedback at joincolossus.com. Thanks, everyone. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 